Hello, and welcome to this series of podcasts entitled Religions of the World and the Restored Gospel of Jesus Christ. My name is James Holt, and I'm your host, and I will be taking you through the various sessions over the coming weeks. This first session is entitled Sitting as the Latter-day Saints at the Interfaith Table, and I'll be exploring this from some of my own experiences and some of my own readings and understanding surrounding things. But first, let me introduce you to the course as a whole. Today, we'll try and explore what it is to be a Latter-day Saint and engage in interfaith. We'll also discuss some of the things that I think will underpin us as we begin to look at some aspects of the religions of the world. Everything that we talk about will be underpinned by the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and is supported by a range of reading that's available at my website, www.jamesdholt.com. As you can see, or as you can hear from the list of um, topics that we'll be exploring, the first three weeks surround some of the theoretical underpinnings of our relationships as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the religions of the world. Today, as I mentioned, we'll be looking at sitting as a Latter-day Saint at the interfaith table. Next week, we'll explore what is religion, and then following that, we'll look at religious freedom beyond tolerance. The um, succeeding sessions will each explore one religion of the world um, in depth and how that relates to the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And then for the final session will be a reflection on what we've learned and perhaps what we can take away from um, the sessions that we've listened to. But first of all, if I can just take an opportunity to introduce myself. Um, so, as I mentioned, I'm James Holt. I'm married to Ruth and we have four children that were born to us and also Ethan, who is um, our son-in-law. I've been a member of the church for over 30 years now. I joined the church when I was 15. Um, not long after that, I was privileged to serve a mission um, for the church in the Scotland Edinburgh Mission as it then was. In the succeeding 25 years or so, I've served as a bishop twice in the same ward for a total of 11 years, and I've served as a councillor on a state presidency. One of the highlights of my church service was being one of the um, first non-US-based members of the Curriculum Writing Committee and contributing to teachings of the presidents of the church, Gordon B. Hinckley. I'm also a member of the National Communications Council in the UK. Having said all of that, um, this is not an official church podcast. This is my own views based on my years of work in interfaith and also with regards to religions of the world. Um, as I move on, those were my kind of personal credentials and, and my church credentials. In terms of my day job, I am an associate professor of religious education at the University of Chester. What that means is that I train teachers, essentially for the most part of my job, to teach religious education in schools. Uh, religious education in schools in the United Kingdom surround aspects um, and teach it for understanding and respect and help people understand the lived reality of religion in people's lives. I do need to highlight that um, the, the two areas of my life, church life and also my professional life, I think make me in some ways uniquely qualified to talk about what we're going to explore today. I've written two books so far uh, with regards to my um, academic and 
um, professional life. One is called Religious Education in Secondary School, an introduction to teaching, learning in the world religions. Uh, that's just about to come out for its second edition. That introduces how we can go about teaching religious education in schools and also introduces us to the six bigger world religions. My second book with regards to religious education is called Beyond the Big Six Religions. And what that book aims to do is um, articulate a case for why we should teach religions that are outside of the so-called big six, and also to expand what we understand by the big six. Um, so for example, there are chapters on Rastafari, on Baha'i, on humanism and on Jainism. But then in expanding our boundaries of what we mean by Christianity, there is a, there is a chapter on the church and on Jehovah's Witnesses. And also with regards to Islam, there's a chapter on Shia and also Amatiya. I hold degrees from um, four different um, UK universities. Uh, my most recent is from 2011, which is a PhD from the University of Liverpool, in which I developed a Latter-day Saint Theology of Religions, which is also another book that is available on Amazon. I am currently working on a series of six books for Bloomsbury, one in each of the larger world religions um, that will come out over the next three years or so. I also currently serve as the chair of the Board of Trustees for the Freedom Declared Foundation, which is a charity dedicated to the promotion of um, freedom of religion within the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm also chair of examiners for religious studies, um, for an examination or awarding organization in the United Kingdom. In some ways, I feel a little bit uncomfortable in sharing all of those things because it's a little bit egotistical, but I think it's important when I talk about religion that you understand that I do have a specialism in that area and it's not just kind of a, a hobby that I'm trying to justify. This is something that has been a part of my adult life, all of my life, all of my adult life, because I taught, um, for 15 years in schools and teaching religious education and I have been at the University of Chester now for the last 12 or 13 years. Okay with that as a background we need to consider what we hope to get out of this course and for me what I would be hoping that you get out of it is just a closeness to the Saviour and also an understanding of God's love for all of his children and also how we can better express our love to every child of God who is um, or may be a different religion to ourselves. And so it's important that we do explore and have a background understanding of each of these religions and how to interact with people who are of different religions to ourselves. Now, my journey kind of began, though it did begin a little bit before this, when I returned home from my mission. Um, I was about 20 years old. Um, I'd served faith, I'd served for two years, faithfully for two years. Um, and then on the on returning home, I went to what is now the University of Chester to study theology, religious studies, and also history. After a couple of weeks, um, one of the lovely members of, of my local ward approached my mum and said to my mum, We're worried about Jimmy. We're worried that he's gonna lose my his faith. So I suppose the question is, what was I doing that was so worrying to, these, to, to, this, to this lady? And it was the fact that I was learning 
and studying about uh, religions other than my own, but also in some aspects reading about Christian theology and learning about Christian theology as well. I think the idea was and the thought was that I would have my head turned essentially by things that are out in the world and would then make me um, leave the church or to go in a different direction. This was highlighted to me as well in a conversation that I had with one of my leaders at that point. Um, and he asked me whether I supported or affiliated with any group individual whose teachings or practices are contrary to or oppose those accepted by the church. That was a fairly common question with regards to attendance at the temple. Now, obviously, I answered, no, I don't. He disagreed. And he disagreed because I went to a university that had a Church of England foundation, first and foremost. But also he disagreed because I was learning about religions of the world. And of course, that meant that I supported or affiliated with them. Like, well, no, I'm trying to learn about people of faith to try to understand them. It's not about um, taking away from my own faith. It's about enhancing that faith, but also about learning about others. But sometimes we find that attitude um, with people that we speak to. And certainly for the first few years of my career as a religious education teacher, certainly um, there were a number of Americans, especially, who were very suspicious, really, of the things that I taught and the things that I did. Now, a lot of that has disappeared over the years, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them, I think, is to do with um, President Hinckley. I think President Hinckley did an awful lot to bring the church out of obscurity and to kind of enable us to have this kind of function. But I also think my own church service has kind of helped people recognize that it's not necessarily automatic, that um, people will lose their faith by working with and, and being with other people. But I think as a background to this, what we need to understand and what I think is really important in any times that we engage in interfaith work or learning about other faith is that we are strongly rooted and positioned within our own faith. So, Yes, I study about world religions and I do an awful lot of reading about them and, and engagement with people of faith. But in all of that, I ensure that my own faith is strengthened, that I don't neglect the basics of the restored gospel and of living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm very conscious that I need to learn of him through the scriptures, that I need to communicate with my Heavenly Father through prayer, and also that I need to serve him and live my life as best I can as one of his disciples. In terms of um, what the Saviour said, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren, I think that has been a part of my life, that when I engage in interfaith, when I study about other religions, when I do anything else, everything is rooted in me as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is crucial, really. We shouldn't be studying things to the neglect of our relationship with Christ.
Elder Robert Orton in 2006, he talked a little bit about this, and, and this is an analogy that you'll have heard many times. He said, as I've flown, I've noted as we commence to take off from the airport, a flight attendant will arise and among other things will say, now if we lose air pressure in the cabin, an oxygen mask will descend from overhead. If you're caring for young children or someone with a disability, make sure you put on your own oxygen mask before you try to help others. Why would the flight attendant say that? Obviously, if you're unconscious, you can't help anyone else. So it is with our service to humankind and our service in the church and in our professions. If we don't strengthen ourselves, we will never be in a position to strengthen others. So, wonderful that you're listening to this session today. However, please do not neglect your own testimony of the Saviour, Jesus Christ. For me, and I think it's really important to note this, in all of my discussions with regards to interfaith, there are non-negotiables in some way. And what I mean by non-negotiables are the tenets of my faith on which I kind of underpin every discussion that I have. First and foremost is my saviour, Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith said, the fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried and rose again the third day and ascended into heaven. And all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. That is the way that I feel. Every aspect of my life is centered around my saviour, Jesus Christ. And so as I talk and as I engage, the Saviour Jesus Christ is at the heart of the way that I speak, the way that I act, and who, that I, who I am. The other kind of pillar, if you like, with regards to my engagement with others and, and who I am, is of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a strong testimony of the restoration. I believe Joseph Smith to be a prophet. I believe him when he said, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son, hear him. If you like, the spectacles that I wear when I interpret scripture, when I interpret any event, obviously um, are born of my own experiences, of my own culture and everything else. But if I can consider one lens to be the atonement of Jesus Christ and the other lens to be the restored gospel of Jesus Christ or the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that will obviously affect how I view things. And when I view things, I begin from the starting point of belief. I have the gift of belief. That is something that, that I believe strongly. And so therefore, as I interact with everything, these two pillars of my testimony, these two lenses of who I am and my beliefs really do help me put everything into context. So to begin, I guess the question that I can ask is, what do the scriptures teach us about other religions? And one of the things that we need to be aware of is that sometimes the scriptures can say different things, depending on the context, who is being spoken to, and especially considering um, the interpretation that we place upon them as well. Uh, because scripture is interpreted and we, and we put a particular spin on it 
to help us understand things. And sometimes our interpretations change over the years. Now, I asked this question in, of an institute class. And when I asked this question, I expected certain answers. And some of those answers I got. But I was very pleased also to see this idea of interpretation, the way that we view scripture and also um, the positiveness or the positivity that young people kind of talked about when we talked about other religions. Because the question I asked them was, what do the scriptures teach about other religions? So there are scriptures, um, for example, called, uh, not called, from, from John 14. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So within um, a, a sphere of theology um, called theology of religions or theologies of religion, there, is, there has been an approach called exclusivism or particularism, if you like. And Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and life. And, and so therefore, in that viewpoint, we can only receive exaltation or salvation through the Savior, Jesus Christ. There's also a passage in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. Now, what does that mean? Sometimes, and we'll talk about this in a moment, it, we, we use it to describe the church, which is great. And I'll explain how I feel that works. But sometimes we use it to describe other people. And I remember using, uh, reading a, a passage from a member of the church once who, who described taking her husband to a um, testimony meeting. And someone bore testimony of the true and living church. And her husband turned to her and said, okay, um, it's been lovely to be with you. I'm just popping off to my false and dead church now. And, and so in some ways we use that phraseology, that scripture to condemn every other religion upon the earth. So that's an interesting matter of interpretation. And I will explain later what I think that means. But some of the other students, they came up with scriptures that I'd not necessarily thought of before or interpreted in this way, or maybe I had and, and just kind of forgotten that those were there. The first one that was raised is in um, Moroni chapter seven, this chapter that talks very much about charity. And using John, um, Moroni 7.12 says, wherefore, all things which are good cometh of God. And that which is evil cometh of the devil. For the devil is an enemy unto God and fighteth against him continually and inviteth and enticeth to sin and do that which is evil continually. So there are two ways to interpret the scripture. But the young man who shared this in my institute class talked about how, well, there is good in other religions. And so therefore, we must see that that good cometh from God. Now, in our next session, we will talk about where the truth and the good in other religions comes from and, and some of the variety of discussions that have undertaken uh, that have been undertaken with regards to those but that that was that really heartened me in the way that we view things because it could have been well other religions take us away from christ now i'm not convinced they do but let's go with that other religions take us away from christ therefore they're of the devil that is an approach that has been used in my lifetime to discuss um, religions of the world. And, and it's very much based on this exclusivist or this particularist view of, of religion. Another scripture which was also used within the seminary class was 1 Nephi 14.10. Um, and this is um, Nephi's 
kind of confirmation of his father's vision. And the angel uh, said, and he said unto me, behold, there are two churches, save two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. Now, this is a challenging scripture if we're saying that um, there is positivity in working with other religions and being with other religions. However, depends on your interpretation. Now, when I joined the church many years ago, um, there had been somebody who attempted to name this great and abominable church, um, but was quickly, uh, had been quickly reprimanded by the first presidency. But also with regards to this, it's kind of saying, well, this is church and everybody else outside of that. But what we're talking about is we're not necessarily talking about a church. We're talking about org an organization or a collection of people. Um, and this is where our language perhaps um, isn't as embraceive as it could be. So we have to look at all of um, the things that are there. Another scripture that was shared in my seminary class was Jacob 5, where it talked about Cain and the wild olives tree and how, how the gardener, if you like, or, the, or those who tended to the trees would take from the wild to graft into the Cain. Now, whenever I've kind of read that, it's been about the restoration of the gospel and the inclusion of the Gentiles and different things. But I think there is a more expansive vision there where we might well include um, aspects of other religions that help us understand more our relationship with Christ. Now, as you can tell, I have a particular approach to this. Um, and there are different approaches that we can find. And one of them is kind of characterized by um, a man called John Hull, who did some work within religious education somewhere. He was, he was an amazing figure within religious education. And this is the view of exclusivism and, and a particularism. I'm holy, I am holy, the argument says, and you are holy. But the ground between us is unholy ground, and we will contaminate each other through harmful mingling of blood if we meet. So this is the idea that I perhaps expressed at the beginning, where we talked about how there are people who feel as though our faith may be tainted or diluted by interaction with people of other faiths. So it's best to keep separate. And this has led to the development of uh, an approach that Patrick Mason in his book, Restoration, has called the Fortress Church. And the Fortress Church was, um, I think he was talking about Romania. And these are huge edifices with very slit-like windows where arrows could be fired out and, and everything else. And let me just use his words to explain it. He says, it just seems to me a metaphor for what in a lot of ways we'd constructed in recent decades, a place of safety, a place of refuge, but a place with pre pretty high walls dividing us from the world. We use that phrase all the time, the world. And the world is almost always referred to with derision as a negative thing, that it's something to be protected against. And that's fine. It provides safety. I was raised in that climate, he said. I've had very positive experiences in a lot of them. My wife and I are choosing to raise our children within the safety of the church because we think it provides a great way to live and a great foundation and a way to approach God and Christ and our neighbors. But there are costs 
to that as well, Mason said. And one of the costs is you become quiet, you become irrelevant. The world passes you by. Part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to think of it. There are times where it's absolutely necessary to raise the drawbridge to circle the wag wagons. We do have a history of very real persecution, but you can't leave the drawbridge raised forever. At some point, if you want to, it seems to me that clearly we're called as Christians to have an influence in the world to not only flee Babylon, but then also to transform the world, to be light and salt and yeast to transform the world. Now, I think that from, from Patrick Mason is incredibly evocative of, of maybe sometimes how we view the world with suspicion. We watch the world go by from within the safety of its walls. I remember listening to um, a talk once in church where a lady said, we can't be the salt of the earth if we're clumped together in the cultural hall. We need to go out into the world. We need to talk about our faith. We need to engage with people. We need to work together with people. This is crucial. And interestingly, it draws on some work of Armand Mouse, a sociologist of religion and also a member of the church, who talks about movements like the church kind of have this pendulum between retrenchment and trying to kind of stay in this fortress church, if you like, and also assimilation where we try and be like others. And I think sometimes we, we kind of are one end or the other. But I think there is a great balance to be struck. So that's kind of one approach to other religions is, is to kind of um, keep ourselves isolated. I don't think that's a realistic approach um, from my perspective. Now, in contrast to what John Hull was saying, Jeff Teese, who's at the University of Exeter, he says it's the space between us that constitutes holy ground, holiness being discovered through encounter. Now, one of my favorite sculptures is, is um, an installation piece of art called On Holy Ground, which shows an image of the burning bush through which God spoke to Moses. And then around it are a number of different pairs of shoes from people around the world. And I think this, this, this sculpture is really great because to me it illustrates what I'm trying to show, is that between two people, there is holy ground. There is a transformative third space. What do I mean by that? Well, it means that when we are in dialogue with the other or another person, we are open to learning and we are transformed in that discussion. Doesn't mean that we change religion, but it means that the way that we practice our own religion changes. It might be strengthened by thinking, well, I don't agree with what that person has just said. Why do I believe what I do? And why do I not believe what they do? Or it might be that in, in dialogue with someone else, you, you gain a different perspective on your own faith and therefore able to internalize that and transform your practice. And I will use examples of how that has happened to me in my life in a few minutes. We also need to be very, very conscious when we are working with people of faith. Yeet said, I've spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly because you tread on my dreams. The Savior said, treat other people as you would like to be treated. Well, let's consider how we feel when people disregard our faith 
or ridicule our faith or treat it lightly. Well, if we feel that way, let us consider how we treat other people's faith and how we speak of them and perhaps how we trivialize them or dismiss them. Let's consider that because there is a great strength in understanding and respecting other people's faith. One of my favorite sculptures, again, using another sculpture, I don't have many, these are probably the only two I, I, I even look at, but there's one called the Cathedral by Rodin. And I have done this a number of times when I've done um, lectures and training around the world, uh, around the world, around the country, excuse me. And I have people try to recreate the Cathedral by Rodin because it's two hands. And people will often spend a good few minutes trying to recreate it with their own hands. Someone in the room will suddenly click and then ask someone else for their assistance because the cathedral is two right hands. And so it cannot be done alone. And I think this is sometimes how we view our work in the world, that we have to do it by ourselves. And that's not true. We have to do it with other people. One of the most important aspects of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ for me is about relationships, is about developing relationships with the Godhead, is about developing relationships with my family and with all of those around me. And I feel that this life is a time to develop relationships as a prelude to exaltation. The Savior prays that we can be one as he and his Father are one. And essentially, we are an exaltation is that unity with God, that unity with the Godhead. And we are practicing, preparing for that by unifying with each other on this earth. And I think this applies not just to our immediate relationships, but all the relationships that we undertake. And so, yes, it begins with God. And the Godhead moves out to our families and then to our friends and then our wards and then the world. We're called to be the salt of the earth, as, as I mentioned before. So when we're working with people of um, other faith and when we're talking to people or when we're just having a relationship with them on a day-to-day -day basis, we an important part of this interface exploration is to recognize convergence, to recognize the things that we have in common. Because there are many, many commonalities between religions and being able to appreciate the things that we share. So um, one of the examples that, that I often use is my attitude towards fasting. And I worked with um, a man called Yusuf in my first school when I was a teacher. And I was in his office and we were talking and he was fasting. Um, and it was very interesting because we would be in a meeting and then at about 4.15 when the sun set, because um, it was in the winter, he would reach, I would see him reach over, having ignored the biscuits and the refreshments and take one. And so we talked about fasting. And at that point, maybe in my youthful naivety, fasting was something that I kind of bore with really that it was something that I did to bless others. Talking to Yusuf, it was the idea he fasted to develop a relationship with God and to feel a closeness to God. 
Now, I'd probably sat through, I don't know how many lessons up until that point about fasting, and I'm, and that will have been spoken about. But for some reason, that meeting, that conversation clicked something in my, or made something click in my mind that changed my attitude towards it. Now, there are many other examples as well. And, and as we go through this series of, of sessions surrounding religions of the world, we will notice convergence. And I will talk about those. And maybe I'll use something that Archbishop Stendhal talked about, which was holy envy. Say, well, this is an aspect of religious practice or, 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 or another religion that I think I can learn a lot from and I can take a lot from. Now, that I think there are limits to the commonalities that we seek. So Hugh Nibley suggests this as well, and, and he compared Islam and Mormonism, um, or the church, and he said, the resemblances are quite superficial, while the differences are profound and fundamental. And I agree with that. So as, and I'll talk about it in a moment, but as important as recognizing convergence, we need to recognize divergence as well. But at the same time, we need to understand that there are limits to the similarities. So yes, our belief in fasting is similar to a Muslim belief in fasting. However, to say they are the same is not true. There are significant differences, not least what underpins them, but also how they're practiced as well. And it's interesting because I was once doing a, a, a video for Church Public Affairs, now called Communications, and I was asked a question on, on this video, on this filming, um, do you believe in the same Jesus as every other Christian? And I said, yes, we do. Um, we believe in the same um, historical person who lived, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who cast out demons, who told parables, who gave the Sermon on the Mount, who was tried before Pilate, who died on the cross and was resurrected on the third day. I then said, however, the way that we understand who Christ is, is different. I believe that he is the second person of the Godhead, separate but united with his father. Whereas um, for many Christians, he is the second person of the Trinity, homoousius with the father, so of the same substance, so not separate. So the videographer or the director stopped the video and said, can we record that again? This time, can you just say yes? It's like, mm, no, I don't think we can, because that's not, that's kind of being disingenuous with the things that we believe. If all we do is say, well, you're like us. There's a, there's a, there's a philosopher called Wittgenstein who talks about language games. And sometimes we use the same language to mean different things. And we just need to be very conscious that we're not leaving people with the impression that we agree with everything in this exactly the same way. But where do these truths come from? And we will discuss this more in, a, in our next session, but um, the Easter message of the First Presidency in 1978, and I can only ever find this in one place. It's in the, it's almost in the foreword um, to Spencer J. Palmer's book, The Expanding Church. And, it, and in this, the First Presidency, who was then, I think, Spencer W. Kimball, N. Eldon Tanner, Marion G. Romney, said the great religious leaders of the world, such as Muhammad, Confucius, and the reformers, as well as philosophers, including Socrates, Plato, and others, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God 
to enlighten whole nations and to bring a higher level of understanding to individuals. Now, I've often heard when I joined the church that the reformers laid the basis for the restoration. But reading this, Muhammad, Confucius, Socrates, Plato, perhaps we can add Guru Nanak, Buddha, and others, these were all inspired to an extent with a portion of God's light, which moved the society in which they worked forward. And oftentimes I like to think that that life, existence really, in, in terms of the plan of salvation, is a continuum of knowledge. And we are all just different. We are children of God at different stages on that progression of knowledge. And so each of these, just in the same way that the law of Moses provided and pointed towards Christ, that each of these individuals were inspired to an extent that could lead people towards Christ. And we will explore that more in greater detail. But it's interesting, and I don't think it's spoken about enough, that we can look at the, what these individuals have done. And for the people who follow them, it has drawn them closer to a fulfillment of that knowledge and truth. One of the concerns with just focusing on convergence or the things that we agree on is something called mutual head nodding. Tom Greggs uh, from the University of Aberdeen has said, this is that we do not engage in dialogue, but in mutual agreement and head nodding without confronting the painful reality of the exclusive ultimates that we have, however inclusive these may be. We run the risk of entering into the kind of universalizing in which maternity has engaged in its understanding of religion, seeing ourselves as all the same and not therefore presenting the at times problematic element of the coexistence of our faith in the religiously and socially heterogeneous communities of which we are a part. Now that's really interesting because sometimes, and, and as I've mentioned, I, I, I teach, have taught religions in schools and talk about religion an awful lot. And one of the things that is often thrown is, well, all religions are the same. Well, actually, and people say, well, no, they're not. The greatest truth within Christianity is that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The greatest sin within Islam is the scribing of partners to God, the shirk. Those are diametrically opposed. Now, some people say, well, if we're engaging in dialogue with Islam, well, therefore, we avoid that conversation. No, we engage with that conversation. I have learned more about my relation. Well, yeah, I've, I've learned more about my relationship with Christ by engaging in that discussion. Why do I not believe that he is only a prophet? Why do I believe he is the son of God? It's a respectful conversation. It's a conversation that helps me articulate my own views. And so this mutual head nodding needs to not be the only purpose of our interfaith engagement. And so therefore we need to recognize divergence. We need to talk about the atonement and the and, and that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We need to talk about the first vision. But as President Hinckley has said, we must not become disagreeable as we talk of doctrinal differences. We can, this is, and this is me, we can, we can have those discussions that are positive, that are not disagreeable. 
he continues, there's no place for acrimony, but we can never surrender nor compromise that knowledge which has come to us through revelation and the direct bestowal of keys and authority under the hands of those who held them anciently. Let us never forget that this is a restoration of that which was instituted by the Savior of the world. It is not a reformation of perceived false practice and doctrine that may have developed through the centuries. So we have to stand firm. We have to recognize those differences. That's as important in being able to articulate who we are as being able to say, well, these things are the same. And we have to recognize that there's truth in other religions. They are full of truth. We need to recognize that those following these religions are not simply other, but fellow children of God at a different point in their eternal progression. And that these religions are providing their adherents with the opportunity to respond to the light of Christ. Joseph Smith argued that engagement with other religions is about developing relationships. He felt that people should build one another up in their faith and cease wrangling and contending with each other and cultivate the principles of union and friendship in their midst. This means that when we engage with other religions, we should see and recognize the value and purpose of this dialogue. President Hinckley suggested that in such encounters, members should look for their, or for those of other religions, strengths and virtues, and you will find strengths and virtues in your own life. And this is, again, going back to that transformative third faith that I spoke about. Dialogue with other faiths, learning of other faiths is not a threat. It's an opportunity to develop relationships, to learn more about others, and also to learn more about ourselves. One of my favorite quotes to do with this is, again, from Joseph Smith. And, and he's rejecting kind of our approach to judgment and judging others. He said, but while one por portion of the human race are judging and condemning the other without mercy, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole of the human family with a fatherly care and paternal regard. He views them as his offspring and without any of those contracted feelings that influence the children of men. So that's how he views them. That's also how we should view them as well. But Joseph Smith continues, he holds, so the Heavenly Father holds the reins of judgment in his hand. He is a wise lawgiver and will judge all men, not according to the narrow contracted notions of men, but according to the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or evil. Whether these deeds were done in England, America, Spain, Turkey, India, he will judge them not according to what they have not, but according to what they have. Now, what this means is we are aware as members of the church that the opportunity to receive the gospel is not limited to this life. It is eternal. It will happen in the spirit world as well. And those people who accept the gospel of Jesus Christ in the spirit world will be judged according to how they live their lives, according to the light which they had received in this life. So they will not be judged according to the light that I have received or you have received. So they'll not be judged about whether they have lived the word of wisdom, for example. But they will be judged according to the, to the laws and the moral guidelines that they had received within their own um, worldview or within their own religion. And this is 
again, not spoken about an awful lot. But I do think, and, and George Lindbeck talks about this, he suggests that the resultant attitudes and actions may at times be to encourage Marxists to be better Marxists, Jews and Muslims to become better Jews and Muslims, and Buddhists to become better Buddhists. Although admittedly their notion of what a better Marxist, etc., is will be influenced by Christian norms. Obviously this can't be done without the most intensive conversation and cooperation. So if we link this to what Joseph Smith has said, my suggestion is that part of living our faith is yes to preach the gospel, yes to share the gospel through our words and through our actions, but also to help other people live their religion, to give them the opportunity to live according to the light that they have received. Now, at some future point, that light may well be fulfilled, but we have to allow people the freedom to live their religion and provide the opportunities for their religious and spiritual life to flourish. Now, Joseph Smith again said, the saints can testify whether I'm willing to lay down my life for my brethren. If it has been demonstrated that I've been willing to die for a moment, I'm bold to declare before heaven that I'm just as ready to die in defending the rights of a Presbyterian, a Baptist, or a good man of any other denomination. For the same principle which would trample upon the rights of the Latter-day Saints would trample upon the rights of the Roman Catholics or any other denominations who may be unpopular and too weak to defend themselves. President Nelson said, religious liberty is essential if we're to raise up righteous children. Morally responsible families will not marginalize religious liberty. They will nurture and protect it. I think we need to reflect on what that means. For me as an individual, what does that mean? I think I know. I think it means that when I work with people of faith, I recognize, appreciate the truth that they have and facilitate as best I can the opportunities that they have to live their religion and to um, respond to the light that they have received. So what does it mean then to be the only true and living church? This is something that has gone through multiple discussions and it's something that I believe. So what does that mean? Now, again, going back to Patrick Mason um, in his book, The Restoration, he said the restoration of God's people is too much for one tenth of one percent of God's family to accomplish on our own. Thankfully, God has recruited a much bigger workforce and set them to work in other parts of the farm, some near and others distant from our immediate view. That he's called others to the work. He's also called others to the work, however, does not minimize the fact that he's called me and you to do a particular work in this particular place at this particular time among this particular and peculiar people. The particular work assigned to the stewardship of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is essential. It's living and it's true. The Lord invites us to lay hold of every good thing cultivated in every part of the garden. But God also needs us to be true to our promises to put our whole hearts into the work in this path so that all his other children can eat of its truly good and irreplaceable fruits. So what, are, what is this work? Well, this work are the ordinances of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. As the true and living church upon the face of the earth, as the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, 
our responsibility is to provide the ordinances for the entirety of humanity. Now that will be in our chapels, it will also be within our temples. In some ways, everyone else is on this path and is drawing closer to Christ and is living according to the light that they have received. And therefore they are engaged in God's work. But again, viewing religions as helpful mechanisms, as things that will draw people closer to Christ through the things that they do, and um, oftentimes the things that they believe, will enable us to fulfill our responsibility to be saviors on Mount Zion as we perform temple work and as we perform ordinance work within the world. And as we do this, as we embark upon this, just again to remind you of the opportunities that engaging with others brings, it's potentially transformative. In genuine encounter with others, we can develop understandings not previously considered as we're open to learn from what we experience. Boyd suggests that when our hearts and minds are properly focused, our dialogues with one another, how in, however impassioned they may be, become the means by which we lovingly help each other appreciate aspects of God's work we might otherwise overlook or fail to understand of it. A person cannot help but be changed by engagement with others. The benefits of engagement are not just a greater understanding of others, but also a greater understanding of what it means to be me. Now, I have been blessed throughout my life with people who I have um, loved, I've cared for, and been friends with, or all of the above. There are many Latter-day Saints who have helped me understand what it is to be a Latter-day Saint, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They are far too numerous to name. Um, I understand, for example, through my wife, Ruth, what it is to be a caring and compassionate disciple of Jesus Christ, who is mindful of all of those around me. But as I consider the rest of my life as well, I can also think of people of all faiths and none who have helped me develop as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I think of a friend who I worked with called Andrew. Andrew is an atheist, but he is perhaps, and he'll probably hate me for saying this, the most Christian of the atheists that I have met in the sense that he is caring, he is thoughtful. Um, and so as I look at him and the actions he performs and the way that he speaks and responds, I try and emulate aspects of who he is because seeing who he is and how he responds to the truth that he has means that I can be better. There's others. Um, a long-time family friend, someone who my wife went to university with, is a lady called Kirsty, who's now a vicar in the Church of England. Um, she's organised, she's caring, um, she's thoughtful. And if I think over the last um, nearly 30 years that I've known her and, and longer that my wife has known her, we've had some very interesting discussions. Not that we've necessarily agreed, but that have helped me understand my faith better. And again, through her actions, I'm able to see more of what it is to be a disciple. I think of others such as Amjad um, and, and Yusuf, both of whom are Muslim. 
who have helped me understand what it is to be a better disciple of Christ, or Sukhbir, who's a Sikh, or Joyce, who's a Buddhist, or Diane and Leslie, who are Catholic. Each of these people has had a huge influence, not just on being my friend, but also on my spiritual life and my life as a disciple of Christ. I'm open to learning from wherever truth may come. And each of these people have had a huge influence and many others as well. Now, as I've considered all of this um, and talked for, for probably over an hour now, there are some things that I think are important as we approach um, interfaith, as we work with people of other faiths. The first one is that we don't neglect our own faith and our religious practice. That has to be our first priority is developing our lives as disciples of Christ. We need to be honest about the atonement of Jesus Christ and first vision and their legacies. Those are things that are part of who we are. They're a part of our identity as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're not asked to um, discard those as we talk with people of other faith. We celebrate them, we talk about them and their implications for us. At the same time, we appreciate the truth found in other religions. And as I mentioned, we'll explore where that may have come from, um, certainly in terms of the light of Christ um, next time. But as a part of that, when we're trying to understand another religion, talk to adherence of that religion and not its enemy. There are many things even in the newspapers that portray certain religions in certain light. But let's talk to people. Just as the Latter-day Saints, I want people to talk to me to learn about my faith, not believe what is written on the internet or um, is shown on television or wherever that might be. We recognize the messiness of religion. Now I've not spoken about this this week, I will do next week, but this is the diversity that is found within and between religious traditions. Don't compare your best to their worst. There are many wonderful things within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There are also many wonderful things in other religious traditions. Sometimes what we do is we focus on our greatest stuff and their not greatest stuff. And it's like, well, let's, let's be positive. Leave room, as Archbishop Stendhal suggested, for holy envy. There is an opportunity to look at other traditions now within the Church of England. I may look at their great cathedrals and and, and the ancientness of them. Uh, that's not to say I don't like our temples. I also might look at the way that a person practices their fasting or practices something else or their scripture study. Doesn't mean I don't appreciate what I, but, but I can look for holy envy. And as we engage with people of other faith, we should be open to developing our own religious practice and understanding. And then we help others live their religion. That is a part of what we do. We are there to understand. We are there to help um, other people know more about our own faith. But we also help others live their religion. Now, I'm grateful for you to have stuck with me in, in this discussion. I am so appreciative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love it. It is a part of who I am. It's a, it's a part of, well, is my discipleship of Jesus Christ is what 
governs my life essentially is who I am. Um, but I'm also recognizing that there is value and there is great value in working with people and learning from people of other faith. Now, as we move forward, our next session will focus on the question, what is religion? And this will look at some aspects of that will challenge our understanding of what religion is and how we use it within the modern world. We'll also consider the roots of religion and where that comes from. And I look forward for you to join me in episode two of these sessions to discuss that. Thank you and goodbye.